Welcome to Inspiring Philosophy, the audio format of the powerful apologetic videos from Inspiring Philosophy Ministries. Please consider supporting Inspiring Philosophy on Patreon to get early access to videos, live Q&As, and to help build the largest apologetic library on the internet. Now, let's get started with the show. In Genesis, we read of Abraham and how God miraculously gives him a son. But when we read his full account, we find duplicates. Hagar leaves twice. Abraham attempts to give Sarah away twice. God seems to make a covenant with him twice, and his nephew Lot is rescued twice. Because of this, many scholars have proposed that the Abraham cycle is a composite of multiple sources. A redactor combined them all into the present form of Genesis without caring that there were duplicates. However, even though this might sound convincing at first, when we dive into the text, we will see there is no reason to think the Abraham cycle is a patchwork of multiple sources. In fact, the very existence of these alleged duplicates demonstrates it's a unified narrative. The documentary hypothesis is the view that the Pentateuch is a composite of multiple sources. Genesis is a patchwork of the J, E, and P source. Some scholars dissent and say J and E cannot be separated and should just be called non-P. So source critics often disagree on how to divide up the text, but they tend to highlight duplicates in Genesis as a reason to think it's a composite of multiple sources. Why are there two accounts of Abraham giving Sarah away? Why does it seem like there are two different times that God makes a covenant with Abraham? But when it comes specifically to the Abraham cycle, Genesis 11:27 to 22, scholars like Gary Rensberg and T. Desmond Alexander point out attempting to divide the account up creates more problems than it solves. In fact, the whole Abraham cycle makes more sense as a unified narrative, and source critics haven't really dealt with their arguments. Let's start with the two accounts of Hagar leaving. Richard Elliott Friedman and Joel Baden divide these up between J and E. And many source critics say they are variants of the same story that were both included in the final text. But Alexander notes the only similarities between the stories are short and general. Hagar flees or is driven out into the wilderness by Abram and Sarai as instigator. Messenger intervenes with promise about son. Clearly, the parallels between chapters 16 and 21 are very limited. However, there are a vast amount of differences. In chapter 16, Sarah is barren, but in chapter 21, Sarah has birthed Isaac. In the first account, the cause of strife between them is because of Hagar's pride in being able to conceive. But in the second account, Hagar is dismissed because Sarah is worried Ishmael will be an heir alongside Isaac. Hagar is not directly responsible for Sarah's antagonism, and Hagar is not betrayed as prideful in the second account. Abraham's response is different in both. In the first account, he gives in to Sarah easily. In the second, Abraham is reluctant to please Sarah. Abraham only gives in when he hears from God. In the first account, Hagar runs away of her own volition after being treated harshly, which allows for her return. And in the second, Sarah has Abraham dismiss her, preventing the possibility of a return. In the wilderness, the function of the wells is different. In the first, the well provides a setting for an encounter with the angel of the Lord, which Hagar then names. In the second, the well only miraculously appears after the theophany, and there is no naming of the well. 
when these differences are brought up, some will often claim the redactor modified the first account. It was changed so Hagar returns, thereby allowing the second account to take place. But if the account was heavily modified, how would we be able to detect what was original and what was changed by the redactor? The redactor could have changed God's attitude towards Hagar, the nature of the well in the story, the reason for strife between Hagar and Sarah, and many other aspects. What of the original story would be detected at this point? If source critics can simply wave away all the differences as changes from a redactor, then their hypothesis becomes ad hoc. Anytime there's a difficulty, it is simply dismissed so the hypothesis is preserved. More importantly, the two accounts do not create unnecessary repetition in the Abraham cycle. John Van Cedars notes, The second account builds on aspects found in the first. In Genesis 21, Abraham's reluctancy to expel Hagar reflects the fact that Hagar was divinely appointed to return to him. It takes a divine revelation for Abraham to change his mind. This can also explain why Sarah was worried the son of a servant would share in the inheritance. Without divine appointment, there would be no reason to think Ishmael could be considered an heir. In this way, chapter 21 resolves a tension created because of chapter 16. The promises made concerning Ishmael resemble those made in Genesis 16.10 and 17.20, which suggests the later passage assumes the reader is already familiar with the content of the earlier passages. Van Cedars also notes a major theme of chapter 21 is inheritance and descendants, which are central to the themes assigned to Jay. He says the thematic concerns of 21.8-21 would strongly suggest that the author is in fact Jay. So it seems the second account assumes the first has already occurred. When we compare the two accounts of Sarah's abduction, we can also note numerous differences as well. So much would have been changed by the redactor if these were originally two accounts of the same event from different sources. Gordon Wenham says, The dialogue between Abimelech and Abraham is similar in fashion to the Pharaoh's address to Abraham in 12.18-19. Both say, What have you done? Echoing 3.13. But thereafter, the speeches and actions diverge markedly. Pharaoh put the blame on Abraham. Abimelech admits he is partly to blame. Pharaoh gives Abraham no chance to reply. Abimelech does. Pharaoh expels Abraham from Egypt immediately. Abimelech lets Abraham have the pick of the land. Van Cedars notes chapter 20 also presupposes the first account has already transpired by addressing a series of questions that were raised in chapter 12. Did the Pharaoh have intercourse with Sarah? Why was the Pharaoh divinely punished? And how did he discover the cause of the plague was from taking Sarah? Did Abraham lie when he said Sarah was his sister? Was it immoral for Abraham to accept money from the Pharaoh? Van Cedars notes these questions are indirectly addressed in chapter 20. Alexander adds that the brief statement of 22 presupposes that the reader will already be familiar with the events of chapter 12. It is barely comprehensible without having read that prior chapter. Verse 13 statement, At every place to which we come, say of me he is my brother, alludes to the fact that chapter 12 has already occurred. So as with the second account of Hagar, the second account of Sarah's abduction presupposes the first. Source critics often argue that chapters 15 and 17 are duplicates. Why does God need to make a covenant with Abraham twice? T. Desmond Alexander notes seeing similar statements in these covenants is not out of the ordinary. The various promises common to both chapters occur frequently through the Abraham cycle. 
We also need to remember the two chapters are divided by chapter 16. In chapter 15, God promises Abraham that he will have a son and his descendants will be vast. In chapter 16, Ishmael is conceived and God tells Hagar that Ishmael's offspring shall be multiplied, which could make the reader think that Ishmael will fulfill the promise made in 15.5. So given that this issue has transpired, it makes sense that God returns in chapter 17 to establish his covenant with Abraham and clarify that the promise will come through Sarah, not Hagar. Alexander also notes there are important differences between the covenants. The covenant in chapter 15 is only focused on having descendants and possessing the land of Canaan, and thus only guarantees some of the divine blessings mentioned in chapter 12. It is also unconditional. God will grant these promises regardless. In chapter 17, God returns to finalize the promises made in chapter 12. The covenant, however, is conditional on Abraham walking before the Lord and performing the sign of circumcision on his whole household. The main focus of the second covenant is on Abraham being the father of many nations, and not merely through his offspring, but on whoever he blesses. Abraham is now the channeler of divine blessing, as promised in chapter 12. All who become circumcised can receive a blessing and become the children of Abraham. This is why even the male foreigners of Abraham were circumcised. Thus, as Alexander says, In the light of the divine promises given in 12.1-3, it is clear that the covenants in chapters 15 and 17 complement each other, whereas chapter 15 focuses on descendants and land. The emphasis in chapter 17 is upon Abraham as the one who imparts God's blessing to others. In this capacity, he is the father of many nations. This understanding of the covenant of circumcision is later reflected in the divine oath of chapter 22, which establishes the covenant with Abraham. Alexander covers many other ways the Abraham cycle functions as a coherent narrative and cannot be divided up between hypothetical sources. But Gary Rensberg notes the Abraham cycle as a whole is structured as a unified narrative. In the similar stories, form a chiastic parallelism between ten episodes. The Abraham cycle opens with the genealogy of Terah and ends with the genealogy of Nahor. Then we see the next parallels are the start of the Odyssey and the climax, followed by the abductions of Sarah, the accounts of rescuing Lot, and then the covenants. One may object that the starting and closing events do not parallel, but both accounts have a similar structure. Chapter 12, as God say to Abraham, Go into a land which I will show you. And chapter 22 says, Go forth to the land of Moriah. In both accounts, the final destination is unknown. In the Hebrew, both journeys end in similar sounding places. Both accounts have Abraham build an altar, and the blessings in both are strikingly similar. This is only a fraction of the similarities that Rensberg lists. When we look at both, it appears to be the work of a single author or group of authors working together. Some argue verses 15 to 19 of chapter 22 are the work of a later redactor. But Rensberg notes, when we recognize the parallels it has with chapter 12, this is unlikely. Since the blessing is necessary to fit with the overall structure of the cycle. Since B opens the Abraham cycle with God's blessing to the patriarch, the second B must close the cycle with only the Nahor genealogy to follow, with the same blessing. They are the most complete blessings of all those conveyed from God to Abraham, speaking of the numerical increase, blessing in general, 
the feet of one's adversaries, and the patriarch as a source of blessing for others. Given the opening blessing in 12, 2-3, the closing blessing in 22, 17-18 is demanded. Within the Abraham cycle, the events which the source critics say are duplicates are actually necessary to create this mirrored structure. So the alleged duplicates that scholars highlight to claim there are multiple sources at play are more likely to be the work of an author, highlighting different events from Abraham's life to create a mirrored structure. Umberto Casuto also notes within the cycle, we see the ten trials of Abraham. The use of ten is a common biblical theme, but within lists of ten, special attention is given to the seventh and the tenth. We see this in genealogies. Special attention is given to Enoch and Noah, or Boaz and David. In the plagues narrative, special attention is given to the seventh and the tenth plague. In the Abraham cycle, special attention is given to the seventh trial, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the final one, the sacrifice of Isaac. The use of this practice strongly suggests there is internal unity at work, rather than this structure just magically appearing from the redactor stitching sources together. Some have brought up how the name of God changes in the cycle, and this is evidence there are different sources stitched together. But Rendsburg notes, the switch makes sense. As before chapter 17, the divine name is mostly used. Then in chapter 17, we see the author switch to using Elohim. In the very chapter, Abraham's name is changed. The change in divine name is expected, as it corresponds with the name changes for Sarah and Abraham. From this point on, the Abraham cycle uses the divine name and Elohim. Rendsburg also notes this gives an impression that theology of the Hebrews was incomplete without using Elohim and the divine name to refer to the one God. The story is incomplete by chapter 16, and then with the Annunciation of Isaac, we see the beginning of its completion. Introducing the other most used name for God at this point helps to illustrate that. Additionally, Abraham's name change happens at the midway point of the cycle. Some may attempt to argue that the actual births of Isaac and Ishmael are not parallel in the story, only the Annunciations. But Rendsburg notes, to the Hebrews, the births of the heroes were secondary to their enunciations. This is equally true of Ugaritic epic, where the events leading to the births of Daniel's and Kret's children receive much more attention than the births themselves. Accordingly, in the Abraham cycle, the enunciations of Hagar and Sarah prompting the birth of Ishmael and Isaac are paralleled, but the births themselves are not. Furthermore, when we look beyond the Abraham cycle, we can see the main body of Genesis is a composition of three cycles, of Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph, linked with intermediary content to connect them. Rendsburg's work on Genesis indicates we're dealing with a unified narrative, not a patchwork of multiple sources. Now, the mere existence of a structure like this does not necessarily mean the account is fiction. The author, when writing the Abraham cycle, could have selected specific stories of Abraham from a larger catalog to form a chiastic structure. Other material, like the other sons of Abraham, were only briefly mentioned in an epilogue. The author also appears to have worked with existing stories, instead of fabricating them. Rendsburg notes the linking material does not have the same beauty achieved in each main cycle, which indicates the author had to work with existing historical material rather than make up stories to create intermediary cycles. However, within the Abraham cycle, we still find evidence to note it is a single unified work, 
rather than a combination of two or three different sources. Not only do the various events in the cycle complement and build on one another, they form an overall chiastic structure, with alleged duplicates fitting within the account nicely to create parallelism. The assumption of source critics that the Abraham cycle is an unsophisticated patchwork is not accurate, as Umberto Casuto said. All this shows clearly out of the material selected from the store of ancient tradition concerning Abraham, a homogenous narrative was created in the text before us, integrated and harmoniously arranged in all its parts and details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspiring Philosophy. And a special thanks to the Inspiring Philosophy supporters who made this episode possible. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help the ministry of Inspiring Philosophy continue, prayerfully consider becoming a supporter of this show by visiting patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. That's patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. And if you want to watch Inspiring Philosophy videos, make sure to follow Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube.